We are thrilled to be here today with Angela Berlisle, a fellow Korean adoptee. We connected with Angela recently and were intrigued by her story. We wanted to continue our conversation on her discussion to forego adoption with her partner and instead pursue IVF in Korea. Welcome, Angela. Hi, thank you so much for having me today. Hi, Angela. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. As we wade into our conversation, we have an opening question that we ask all of our guests. And that question is, what are the top two adoptee parenting themes that you are meditating on right now? I think I've been meditating on a lot of parenting themes lately. But what I love about this question was actually the intentionality of adoptee parenting themes. One of the first things that surfaced for me around this question of adoptee parenting themes was the idea of the ways that I'm trying to mother myself. To me, this seems so connected to my experience as an adoptee because the loss of my Korean mother and that relationship and all of the ways that that loss and separation has impacted my sense of self and I know will impact the way that I will show up as a parent um, and as a mother. And I think this experience of embarking on growing my family and, and choosing to have children, biological children, it feels like a time traveling experience where holding myself past, present and future, self-reflection will absolutely inform the kind of mother I will be. And when we talk about mothers, intentional or not, there are so many cultural norms that put mothering within the confines of, of understanding mothering through patriarchy or even gendered ways of understanding mothering. And so I think when I say mothering myself, I, I don't mean ways that are, are gendered even, but just how can I affirm my own self-worth, my own feelings, my own truths and lived experiences? How can I be tender and full of self-compassion to my, give that to myself? Because as an adoptee, I feel a sense of obligation to please other people. The ways in which that could inform how I become a parent and the relationship that I have with my child or the expectations that I put on my children. So yeah, I think I've, I've really been trying to think of the ways that first I can mother myself. hope that that allows me to be a better mother, a loving mother. The second theme that I have been doing a lot of also um, a lot of self-reflection and a lot of healing work is the idea of intergenerational trauma. How I understand intergenerational trauma is to also name how adoption is a traumatic experience. I'm trying to reflect on how the trauma I carry around my own abandonment may inform how I show up as a mother. I have so much fear around rejection and abandonment and how that fear could show up in the ways that I mother. Like Intergenerational trauma is such a complex and really painful topic for me to meditate on. And I think really connected to that is also trying to understand what healing that trauma looks like for me through this process of trying to build more self-awareness around how that trauma shows up in my life and, and what stories have I internalized around myself or around mothering or my worth as a mother. I think 
Um, that's been part of my healing journey. And I'm also part of my journey in becoming a mother. That's so powerful, Angela, about, I mean, all of these themes that you're naming, but also really just acknowledging and naming first and foremost that adoption is trauma, you know, and the ways that we intergenerationally, you know, for hundreds of years, right, have carried this collectively, individually, not only as a Korean adoptee, but also just as adoptees of color, right? There's so much to unpack there. And I just really think that that's such an important one that as you are working on your own healing and self-reflection, as as you said, currently, and just really thinking about the way that you are mothering yourself, that we have to name that first and foremost. Um, so thank you for sharing that and really bringing us into the present moment, as well as speaking so much to the past and also thinking about the future. You know, I think that has me wondering about a conversation that we, you know, had earlier about your husband, you know, originally and, and both you and your husband considering adoption. And so, I mean, really just even thinking about this last theme and where you are now acknowledging this trauma, but really thinking about how that came into, you know, conversations as you were considering this and initially thinking about this. So we're wondering a little bit more about that journey you know, that this idea, you know, to now a decision to pursue having biological children. Do you mind speaking more about that? Because all of my siblings are adopted, my conception of family was that of adoption. I have two siblings adopted from South Korea, and I have three older siblings adopted from India. I really internalize that idea of family equals adoption. I think because of the, the nature of my own family, um, I really internalize that idea of when I start a family or when my family grows, um, it will be through adoption as well. I think as adoptees, or at least adoptees with no biological siblings, my sense of self didn't start in my mom's in my mom's stomach or at a hospital. Um, my life began at an airport with an older white man like carrying me to my parents' arms, and that was the same story for all of my siblings. And so I think just pregnancy as a concept was so foreign to me. I have a lot of fear around pregnancy because it's just been so disconnected from my own reality, from my mom's reality. And so I know that that, that played a part in my choice for wanting to adopt growing up. The most painful part of me interrogating my decisions, my ideas around wanting to adopt for so long um, was the white saviorism. So many of our adoption stories or just to be adopted is nested within. And I see that in my own adoption. I see that in the adoptions of my of my siblings. And I had internalized that narrative as well. I think all of those things played a part in my beliefs around wanting to adopt for a really long time. And then I met Chris. So I taught in Korea for six years. And I met my partner, Chris, there. And when I met Chris, he, on our very first date, he knew I was adopted. We had been chatting online before we went out on our first date. And he knew I was adopted through just our sharing about our family. And so on our first date, um, within the first five minutes, he said, I think we're going to be something. I, I really like you. And so I just want you to know up front, I've had a vasectomy, which I thought was a really strange thing to tell someone on their first date. <laughs> but what he, he was like, because, and he told me, I, I got a vasectomy when I was was in his early 20s. 
he had been married previously. So in his first marriage, he and his wife wanted to adopt. And so he chose to get a vasectomy then. And he said, I wanted to tell you this because I want to be honest with you. And I want you to know, to know that about me and that I have hopes of adopting one day. I was really excited to meet Chris because actually every partner I had been with before didn't really want to adopt or had a lot of hesitation, which also that in and of itself, that's a whole separate conversation of of all their reasons for not wanting to adopt. But uh, with Chris, um, it was something that really bonded us. We dated for five years. And throughout that time, um, our plan was to adopt. And we got married, I think, yeah, around five years, we got married. And it really wasn't until the first year of our marriage that I began to really interrogate my own adoption story. Living in Korea actually wasn't the catalyst for that. But when I sit back and I reflect on why and I was not more critical of my own adoption in Korea, and I, I think it was just too painful. I think living in Korea was It was a difficult experience. I felt a lot of connection there, but I also felt a lot of unbelonging there as well. And then to question my own adoption and my own sense of belonging while living there, unconsciously, I made the decision to not really, because I had opportunities to speak with my adoption agency around um, finding my Korean mother. And I chose at that time not to. And And I think because I was just not ready to do that really painful inward work. And so fast forward, we are out of Korea um, in graduate school. And a lot of my research in education, I was in graduate school to get my master's of education. And a lot of my research focused on the ways that white supremacy and racial injustice um, shows up in our practice as educators in environmental education. A lot of that is interrogation around our own beliefs and values. And I think through that work in graduate school, I really, one, it really helped give me the language to name what I had known my whole life. I think as adoptees, we carry these experiences in our bodies. And, but I just didn't, I didn't have the language. It was like I had the feelings in my body, but I didn't know how to put words to them. And I think being able to really interrogate systems of oppression and naming the ways that these systems inform our own beliefs and our own stories gave me the tools to really interrogate my own adoption story. I got to a position where I no longer felt like I had the emotional capacity to pursue adoption with Chris. And at that time, I mean, we had been together now for six or seven years. And so we were, and we were in our early thirties then, and we had been really thinking about starting a family very soon or growing our family very soon. And I just, I felt like the wounds were so tender that I couldn't proceed with, with adoption anymore. Chris and I had to have a lot of really difficult conversations because Chris, so for context for Chris, Chris is white. And it was really hard for us to have these, for me to have these conversations with him, one, because his lived, his lived experience is a white, is as a white male, white cisgendered male. And here I was trying to explain to him 30 years of trauma. (laughs) It was really hard because I grew really frustrated and resentful 
because I felt like I had to be his site of learning. And and it was just really hard because I also wanted to be loving and supportive to my partner. And it felt so unfair that I had to be the one to be so vulnerable and and to like open these wounds for him to learn. And I think already as people of color, like there is so much responsibility put on us to teach white people about racism or the impacts of racism. And so to do that with my partner, it was very, very, very challenging. And and I eventually got to a spot where I just had to stop actually, because it was doing more harm to me. It wasn't worth the harm. I just, I realized this is not the worth the harm I'm, I'm putting on myself. And what was helpful for Chris, for both of us actually, was doing our own, our own learning and unlearning around adoption through, you know, we read Nicole Tsung's book. We went to listen to other adoptees speak on ambiguous loss. We watched movies together. We listened to podcasts and it took the pressure and the responsibility of me to teach Chris or to help him unlearn the ways, the harmful ways that white saviorism informed his own understanding of, of adoption as well. And it also helped give me the language and affirmation um, of my own lived experiences. There's so many layers and what that means. I mean, I have been in that situation. I, I am still in that situation with a lot of people that are in my life, but just loving that you have kind of taken your power back and, and asserted your agency to really kind of do this co-learning together and moving this, the site of learning for both of you in different ways, of course, off of yourself and maybe externalizing that a little bit more and using the resources that do exist so that you can learn side by side. And just wondering a little bit more about when you were going through this process, yeah, just like what it was like for you kind of on this internal level. I mean, did you feel like it was mirroring some of your uh, relationships with other white folks in your life? And, you know, was it re-triggering? And in terms of your identity transformation and where you are today, are you at a place where you guys, you know, are very much still in process? Do you look back and laugh? Or are you still very much in these intense, deep conversations? Like, what's it kind of look and feel like, you know, as the transformation has continued? As a, a transracial adoptee, my entire family, my entire extended family, Chris's entire family, they are all white. And it really does, I think, this relationship that I have with Chris and this experience that I can with Chris around this unlearning of what, what is adoption truly that centers the adoptee perspective. And through my own unlearning of adoption, realizing how so much of this narrative is dominated by adoptee parents or by the adoption industry right? and the ways that we decenter adoptee experiences and on our first families. I think because that narrative is so strong that uh, it absolutely informs the ways in which my family still, I think, conceptualize adoption. And for Chris's family as well. And I think with Chris, because he is my life partner, he is the closest person to me that I think what made it so hard with Chris is that proximity of closeness. And so not only is he the person that I go to for that support, but when he hurts me, it hurts me the most too. And I think 
going through this process with Chris really taught me, I think, like you said, um, how to take agency as an adoptee. And also, I think, how to have boundaries. I think as adoptees, our stories don't feel like our own because our racial identity sticks us so far. Like it is the first thing people notice about us and our families. And just the questions I feel like we feel from people around our our own stories are so intrusive and, and so inappropriate. But And yet people feel entitled to those. And so I think part of this experience with Chris has really had me do some deep reflection around protecting my energy. And I know that there are many more conversations that I I want to have with my family, with his family, with, I mean, even friends. And that I think my energy and my my own emotional and mental well-being, I am allowed to protect. And so I it, I guess I don't have like a clear, I don't have like a, a specific like one way I approach these conversations with other people, but I do think that it is, yeah, an ongoing process that I'm still, I'm learning how to do with better boundaries <laughs> um, to answer that question. With Chris, now, I think you had asked, is this something that we laugh about? <laughs> I think this experience has really humbled me and Chris as well in, in all the way, and unlearning in general, not just around adoption, but for all the ways in which oppression informs our values and beliefs and that those these systems are learned. Like we learn racism, we learn ableism, we learn sexism, and we can unlearn these things too. And and it's painful and it's really difficult. And with adoption, unlearning the ways that systems of oppression inform adoption has been a vessel for us to carry through with all the other the other ways harm can show up in our lives. So I think it's lifelong work and Chris and I know that. I think his positionality as a white man, he knows it, it's not my job to do that unlearning for him, When it, especially when it comes to race. There are so many other ways in life that we can unlearn together as well. So I, I do think um, acknowledging the positionality in our relationship has been really important and helpful for us to have these conversations. And one thing I wish for Chris and that I found a lot of solace in is speaking to other Korean adoptee women about our lived experiences. And I think I wish for Chris is for him, I think, to have the spaces for our white partners to do that work together, because I I don't think that that's our responsibility. I mean, I, I think we can be there to be supportive of our partners, but I don't think we're responsible for them and learning and for them to have their own affinity spaces to do that work, I think is really valuable. So Yeah, it's so important for us to be individually, collectively doing our own work. Right. And I think as I heard you speaking about just really the the tender process that you've been going through in your own journey and, you know, really looking and disrupting different things, but also really learning and unlearning different things and helping set boundaries, you know, is part of that work and really important in our interpersonal relationships and our intimate relationships and our family relationships. And I I think a quote that always stands out to me by Prentice Hempel is really that boundaries are the distance at which I can love you and me simultaneously. And I really was reminded of that as you were speaking so intimately about how important that has been in your relationship and in your own 
identity transformation and, and just alongside your husband, but also just how, um, as people of color, that's so important, right? As we oftentimes are, you know, the, the, as you said, kind of the site of learning or, you know, just within our own proximity to whiteness and how we have to sometimes really have out of tender, loving care, these boundaries. So appreciate you digging deeper, you know, into what that has been like in your process, in your own relationship, you know, shifting gears a little bit. I'm so curious because I think something that really connects us too um, is really this connection and living back in Korea. Both Nari and I have also spent time in Korea and just think that that's something like you mentioned, its own experience. But in addition to that, you know, you've really more recently been in Korea to pursue IVF. So can you tell us a little bit more about your decision to go there specifically for treatment? Like I mentioned earlier, Chris and I both lived in Korea for five years. So we have familiarity around navigating their healthcare system. And also our closest friends in Korea, they underwent IVF treatment. When Chris and I decided, okay, we're, we're going to pursue having biological children, Chris had to get his vasectomy reversed. And so he did that, I think almost four years ago now. And at that time, we were waiting to see if we could just um, conceive without any kind of fertility treatment, that the reversal was successful and are hoping that it would be successful, but um, it was not. <laughs> and so a year and a half after trying post his reversal, my doctor said that really the only chances of you conceiving um, are to undergo IVF treatment. And being here in Seattle, all of the clinics that we spoke with the cost of IVF treatment were around thirty to up to fifty thousand dollars, and having this experience in Korea and knowing and having friends, actually, I think that was one of the biggest factors. We have actually, I know of three couples that have under that have undergone IVF treatment in Korea, and so I reached out to them to just learn more about their experience, and all of them actually recommended going to Korea. I think the first being just cost. IVF treatment in Korea averages, it depends on what clinic and, uh, and obviously the what procedures that you need, but anywhere between three to $6,000, sometimes a little higher, but definitely nowhere near the cost of IVF treatment in, in the U.S. I have never received IVF treatment in the United States, so I actually I don't have that context of understanding, but my friends who have have told me that in Korea... They felt like the technology that they used, they do things like assisted embryo hatching or embryo cleansing. And these procedures that in the U.S. you have to pay additional money for to have a more successful outcome. But in Korea, it's just all wrapped up in their general IVF treatment. And so their advice or part of their decision to do IVF in Korea was they felt just that there was more medical advancements, I guess, in, in the process. Um, so there were a lot of logistical reasons, financial reasons for us to choose Korea, um, the cost, um, just feeling like we would receive better treatment in Korea. When we reached out to the IVF clinics here in the States, there was a lot of pre-meetings, coming in, talking to the doctors, getting all of these tests done before we could even start. And in Korea, there's none of that. It's just come in and maybe meet with the doctor once before you start, but then you you just start treatment um like on day two of your cycle, like it's just really quick and efficient. 
compared to um, just our experiences with the clinics here in the U.S. And so that was another reason logistically that we leaned towards Korea. And then I think on the other end, there were just a lot of heart-led decisions. It just felt, when I lived in Korea for those first five or six years, I really resisted actively reconnecting with my Korean heritage because I felt embarrassed. I felt, I mean, I think to be in adopting Korea, it's a very surreal experience. I I know I personally had hopes of like, I'm going to get off the plane and I'm going to feel this like sense of belonging and connection. And actually what I found was quite the opposite. I mean, I think we just stand out. We we look different, I think. But there's so many ways I think that Koreans know that we grew up in the... Well, for me, that I grew up not in Korea. And when I think of my younger self, I think I was just really naive to... Well, I guess that's not really a kind way of doing that for myself. I just had... I had a lot of hopes that my experience in Korea would be belonging and there would be connection. And the Koreans that I did meet, I think adoption was really a source of shame for a lot of Koreans that I met. And because of that, there was a lot of discomfort around discussing, you know, my own adoption and my own, I think, Koreanness as a Korean adoptee. So I think all of those reasons made, you know, my my first experience in Korea really difficult. And then being home after leaving Korea and, and going through that, you know, as we talked about earlier, that tra- kind of identity transformation, I really had a strong just desire to be back in Korea. I think with this difference, I don't know, I just thinking differently and conceptualizing differently my own Koreanness and really wanting to be back in Korea. That felt more like a heart-led decision to go back to Korea for IVF and also informed um, our decision to go. I just, yeah, I just wanted to be back in Korea. I wanted to have the opportunity and information to visit the woman's shelter that my my Korean mother stayed in throughout her pregnancy and to visit the hospital. I received this information um, after leaving Korea for the first time, the hospital that I was born in. So I don't know, I just felt like the cyclical, I don't know, to go back to Korea, not only to try to conceive, but also to revisit my own birth story. I just felt like that alignment felt really special and something that I wanted to do. So. That was another reason we chose to do IVF treatment in Korea. Wow. Thank you so much for just so many details and how you have articulated the heart-led decisions. I mean, all the logistical pieces, of course, are a piece of the puzzle, but that heart-led decision to want to revisit your own birth story while creating a new story for yourself via IVF and with Chris, it's just so powerful. You know, you mentioned earlier at the very beginning about, you know, time traveling past, present, and future, and how we're always occupying all three of those spaces, you know, in every part of our lives. But this definitely seems like a place where that is truly happening and truly coming together, being in this light bending process, healing back and healing forward for yourself and healing your inner child and conceiving your future child. There's just so much power in what you're saying and how you've how you're naming and 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 telling your story and how it's unfolding uh, based on that self-love that I hear from you and that compassion for yourself. You know, based on our previous conversation and you know, just a little bit more about the time that you have spent in Korea most recently. 
when you've come back to Korea with these intentions that you just named, uh, very different intentions maybe, or maybe just more um, articulated internal intentions for yourself from when you were teaching in Korea for five years previously, and just how it's felt going back with these different and or maybe more pronounced intentions for yourself, and then going through the IVF treatment thus far, what's that been like not only on a logistical level, you know, maybe with language barriers or maybe just language challenges, maybe, and, you know, different, you know, different culture. Uh, you, you mentioned like they just kind of get you in there and get you started. <laughs> it sounds very Korean to me, you know, what that's been like for you. And then, yeah, if they've, you know, if they, your medical team does know about your adoption, if they've shared feelings or reactions about that. Yeah, that the whole experience, the heart feelings as well. I'm like a relatively anxious person in general. I can overthink things, and I can wor- I can just worry myself into a, a very dark place. And I so I think actually the language barrier. I have been taking Korean language in preparation for Korea. I I was taking Korean language classes to brush up on my Korean again, and just to because I I do think navigating the language barrier was a really big challenge for me living there the first five years. And and I anticipated that it would be again, going back for IVF. But, you know, when I go, when I go to a Korean doctor, it's more just them, you know, they say, okay, you need to do this, this, and this. And there's not a lot of like opportunities to question that. I don't know. I don't know if I'm describing this accurately. Knowing that I couldn't spiral into anxiety and worry with the language and, and that the language barrier would actually help me not do that. I just put a lot of trust and I had a lot of faith in the clinic that I went to um, because I've had um, several friends who have received treatment there. And I knew that the, they had off, they had shared with me that, you know, they, the care that they received, they were really happy with. And, and, and I think the difference in Korea versus the U S is it's not that the doctors weren't caring or the staff that I worked with, I could tell they have genuine care, but I do think they don't sugarcoat things. They just, you know, they told me like it was with care. I appreciated that about going to Korea for IVF and that still, I think the language barrier was quite difficult. We chose to go to a smaller clinic in the city of Ulsan, which is where I used to live. And so compared to the IVF clinics in Seoul, where you can you can hire translators and they just have more structure built within their clinics to support non-Koreans coming for fertility treatment. This clinic did not really have that. So I definitely experienced still a lot of insecurity and vulnerability because on our first visit to the clinic, because I, I look Korean and this happens all the time, the Korean staff they don't even look at Chris, they look at me and they start speaking to me in Korean. And and because my Korean is not fluent, I think I was met with a lot of, a little frustration and a little bit of, I think, hesitation for them to even want to take us as patients. And I wasn't expecting that when I went to this clinic. And I realized it was because the friends of mine who went into that clinic, actually, they were all white. They were all white couples. And then when I explained that I was a Korean adoptee and that I, you know, apologizing for the lack of fluency in my Korean, but this, you know, this is why I'm here. I think as adoptees, it's just such a vulnerable place to be in because in the back of my head, I'm, there's always this question of enoughness and, and I'm coming in for this very personal 
procedure of one, like this thing that holds so much weight for me and for my partner. And then to also hold that vulnerability and around being, a, you know, a Korean adoptee in Korea, it definitely was not easy. <laughs> I was expecting all of this. I, I remembered from my first experience in Korea, what are the things that are going to happen? What are the reasons? What do I, I have it like memorized in Korean? Like, my name's Angela. I'm a Korean adoptee. Like, I'm learning Korean. You know, I can speak Korean. I can read Korean. But, you know, I have that script memorized in my head. And I knew I knew what that experience was like. But what I always forget is how that feels in my body. I think going back to Korea the second time, I thought I was prepared. And I actually, what caught me the most off guard was just how that vulnerability felt in my body paired with the vulnerability of coming to seek fertility treatment. Felt like a lot for my heart to hold (laughs) this experience in Korea. Yeah, like you said, this like vulnerability around like my inner child and my need for belonging in Korea, but also like this wanting so deeply to have a child and all of that kind of meeting in this experience was definitely overwhelming at times. Yeah, and appreciate this opportunity to hold, you know, this vulnerable experience and process because I think we're hearing so much about what it's like when you maybe go into something and you did have some very intentional thoughts or, you know, reasons why you were picking maybe this clinic versus the other clinics or, you know, having that script. I certainly remember that, <laughs> like going in a taxi cab and like having all these reasons to, you know, you feel like you have to defend yourself in certain ways or justify certain things, but really also realizing that off the script, you know, what you were noticing and feeling somatically in your body and and experiencing so important, right? And it sounds like that's what really I'm hearing was a big part of that process for you and really helped you have more trust and faith even in the process, I think is really powerful to hear. And so, yeah, I can just imagine what that must have been like to be navigating all of these systems, you know, the strengths and also the challenges in that. And, you know, I think that has us really wondering about, you know, for other BIPOC adoptees who may be experiencing, you know, fertility issues and or pursuing IVF treatment, whether that's in Korea or whether that's in the States or in the country that you're residing in, what are your hopes and wishes, you know, for your community? So this past summer, my brother passed away. And it was actually the reason why we ended up having to stop fertility treatment in Korea. So we had planned to stay in Korea and so it was successful or hoping, but we had to come back because my brother who had cancer, his condition significantly got worse. And so we made the decision to stop treatment and come back to be with him. I think sit with the grief of losing my brother. I realized, you know, I've been really, of course, my my first gut reaction is to intellectualize my way out of difficult feelings. <laughs> so I, I wanted to read all about grief and what is grief and how do I, like, how do I process grief? And so what I realized in this trying to befriend grief is how, as an adoptee, I have avoided grief for so long because as adoptees, there's so much for, for me, I I think, I don't want to speak again for other adoptees, but for me as an adoptee, I have avoided, I think I avoid grief specifically because there's so much grief I hold um, as an adopted person. 
And so I, to avoid that pain, I have, I avoid those difficult emotions. And I think wrapped up in that also as adoptees, it's not only like the pain that we will inflict upon ourselves, but also the fear of hurting our loved ones if we, to express grief about our adoption and the worry that we will hurt our family, you know, because there's this binary in adoption that, of, yeah, I know most adoptees are so familiar. It's like we have to be these grateful adoptees. If not, we're like the angry adoptees that this both and can exist. Of, you know, we can grieve and feel angry about our adoption and love our adopted family. Like, I think adoptees, that's like our superpower, right? It's like we so often sit in paradox. That is one which, yeah, I hope for other adoptees that this fertility journey because we have not yet, it has not been successful so far, um, that there is just so much grief that I think Chris and I both have experienced. And that I realized that avoiding that grief actually is much hard. Like, I, I guess I just to give, yeah, give ourselves permission to grieve and to be gentle and tender with ourselves through this experience, because it, I think it hits at so many of my own personal longings and and desires and that are wrapped up with family and connection that and my own adoption so I think befriending grief and and finding others that you can do that with together that it doesn't it it can be an individual experience but I think I've also found a lot of joy and connection in finding others who are going through this something similar and that actually that was one thing that um, surprised me the most is so many people who have gone through these experiences as well, not necessarily adoptees, but just people who are experiencing their own fertility um, issues, reaching out to me, um, whether it's friends or strangers, and what a gift that has been. So I hope for other adoptees to find that community as well. And I think the other wish that I have or hope is, I, I think, I know we've mentioned this earlier, but I think for adoptees to feel like they can also have boundaries through this journey. The, our stories sometimes don't feel like our own. Going through this fertility journey, I've had so many, so many loved ones say to me, oh, well, you know, if this doesn't work out, you can just adopt. Like, why don't we just, or why, why are we even doing this? You could just adopt. Like, why not do that instead? And I feel like that's like the classic intention versus impact. I understand their intentions are loving and coming because they see my adoption as a loving thing. But the impact is is that it's so invalidating of my own adopted experience. And I have been really boundaried around who I share my fertility journey with and what I share. And that we don't, I don't, I think we don't owe anything more than we're comfortable sharing to people and like and especially as adoptees. Yeah, I think those those are the two things that I wish for. Thank you. Again, yeah, I just that beautiful juxtaposition of finding connection, but also creating positive boundaries for yourself, healthy boundaries. It's like learning to, you know, build a nest around yourself and for yourself um, while also being in community or in collectivity with others. I just love the imagery of that and also kind of how you characterize living with paradox or living with ambiguity um, as adoptees as a superpower. 
that it can be such a source of rage and frustration and pain and grief. Yeah, just melancholy and all of these things, but also that experience, that lifelong experience of sitting with that, sitting with uncertainty and unreconciled experiences and longings is an incredible life teacher. And it, it does become a superpower. And I just, I just love that. Reflecting back to you, just your practice of self-love, your practice of self-compassion and permission to be your full self through, you know, experiencing and holding the range of feelings that you have inside yourself. Just wanting to really share that that hits me on a really deep level, even just kind of hearing the way that you you know, are practicing that in conversation right now and the way that you're choosing to frame things for yourself and, and around yourself is, is so inspiring and so loving. And I think the impact of that, the way that we hope, you know, this podcast will sit with our readers is going to reach very far. And so I just want to thank you for that. Our last and final question for today is a question that we always end with. And that is, what are the other labors of love that you're doing aside from pursuing parenthood right now? I really value connection and community. And I think COVID and just this experience, this collective experience of living through a global pandemic has surfaced even more for me, the importance of community. This fertility journey has, I mean, um, unpacking my adult, you know, my, my experience as adopting, like all of these things just um, affirm my, this feeling in me that I, I just so value community and, and friendships. And, and then I really think about community though, as action, that community, like intentional communities require action and practice. I think something I was thinking about as I was writing this is I think a lot of times people hear that and think, oh, chosen family, like, oh, your chosen family. But I think I have this kind of gut reaction when I hear the word chosen family because that language is so connected to adoption. It's used to justify adoption. Like you hear people say, you know, oh, they chose you. We chose you. And that's what makes it special. And again, that is so invalidating to the experiences of adoptees and that chosen family exists within this framework of white supremacy and saviorism and also sexism and reproductive injustice for all of our first mothers. It it completely disregards their existence within that framework of chosen family. So communities of practice or my communities of care and that I really, especially during COVID, have leaned into that practice of care for for my loved ones, for my friends, of especially nurturing relationships with other women of color and how can, what does community look like as a practice? And I, that does require my time and my energy in really intentional ways, but in ways that give me so much nourishment and joy. And so I think that's really helped carry me through this pandemic. Um, But I think also, I mean, it is connected to parenting because I do think it takes a village <laughs> and and I want to be really intentional with with my village and so I was just recently I don't know if you're familiar with the book How We Show Up Reclaiming Family Friendship and Community by Mia Birdsong but she writes a lot about yeah what does it mean to reconceptualize community and she has a great quote that says care for others is care of myself 
care of myself is care for others. And so I think I've just been, that's kind of been my mantra, especially through the pandemic and through this fertility journey. Yeah. So that's kind of where I've been putting a lot of my, my labor of love. Care for myself is care for others. Such a powerful and beautiful mantra and reminder. What a gift, you know, that you are also giving today and just in our conversation of really sharing not only your wonderful ways that you are nourishing and cultivating connection and community through your labors of love, practicing that, but really, you know, thank you for helping validate so many of our experiences as a, as a adoptees of color. And really, hopefully, I, I, we just know that this is going to reach so many tender hearts and, and just open ears out there to just receive so much of what you're saying. I think we could continue this conversation for so long because there's so much that you bring up and all of you know the different parts and pieces that we've really explored today. Really want to appreciate you for your courage and vulnerability to come into this space and to share as much as you've wanted to with our community. Really, thank you so much too for really time traveling with us. It's been such a privilege and an honor to sit so powerfully in the past in the present and also in the future with you. So thank you so much. Thank you both so much. I, I know I've said it before, but I just want to say it again here at the end that I think this is such a gift to, to share about the community. I'm just so grateful to have had the opportunity to meet with you both and, and to join this community that you are so, so lovingly creating. And yeah, I just, I'm just really happy to be able to have my story held by you both. So thank you so much. Thank you for tuning into our podcast. And if you're into what you're hearing, please spread the word and invite friends to like us, follow us and share us on Instagram at labor of love podcast. And if you want to support our podcast, you can Venmo us at labor of love podcasts.